0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: Food is about kinship. Food is about love. Food is about generosity and hospitality. Food is about cultural identity, and all of those factors were neglected when they were given macaroni. This week on the show, we're rebroadcasting an interview with Elizabeth Cullen
0: Dunn. She's a food scholar, professor of geography and international studies at Indiana University, and she'll be leading IU's newly formed Center for Refugee Studies. In this interview, she shares stories with producer Alex Chambers from her field work in refugee camps in Georgia after Russian aggression pushed ethnic Georgians from their homeland. Later, we share a set of umami-rich recipes from Chef Arlen Wellen. And so much more coming up this hour, so stay with us. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Across much of the U.S., winter is not as cold as it used to be. In Indiana, the average winter temperature is about 5 degrees warmer than it was in 1970. As St. Louis Public Radio's Shayla
2: Farzan reports, warmer winters are changing how some farmers grow their crops. On a frigid winter morning, Liz Graysnack cracks open the door of a greenhouse, letting out a rush of warm, earthy-smelling air. She carefully peels back a layer of cloth on the ground, revealing rows of tiny sprouts.
0: That's the delphinium plants. These little dudes right there.
2: (laughs) This is just one of four greenhouses that Graysnack has at her organic farm near Columbia, Missouri. Inside, she's able to grow delicate, high-value crops, like flowers and spinach. Graysnack says these greenhouses help protect plants from extreme swings in weather, something she's noticed is happening more frequently. We don't get a couple of inches of snow. We get 18 inches of snow all at once. And then in five days, it's 70 degrees again. (laughs) Like, that's devastating to a vegetable farm. Data show extreme weather is just one of the many effects of climate change across the U.S. For farmers like Graznak, another major change is warmer winters. The four hottest Januaries on record have all occurred since 2016. Amy Butler is a climate scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says winter is warming faster than any other season, based on data going back to the late 1800s. But, she says, cold weather will still happen.
0: Less cold does not mean never cold. It just means that really cold weather will happen
3: less often and be less severe or persistent in the future.
2: These warmer winters have ripple effects in agriculture, says Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub in Ames, Iowa. One of the effects is on soils. Tati says Midwestern soil is fertile because historically it freezes every year, which stops bacteria and other organisms from breaking it down.
0: As the winter's warm, we have a longer period of time where that is unfrozen, or we have more of the area that it never freezes, so the soils can kind of break down, so we start losing more of that good uh, nutrient value in those
2: soils. When soils don't freeze, it can also help crop pests survive the winter and allow them to expand into new regions. But when it comes to agriculture in the Midwest, one of the most noticeable results of climate change right now is longer growing seasons. Richard Oswald's family has been farming in northwest Missouri on the Nebraska border since the 1840s.
1: When I was a kid, my dad had a firm rule, you don't plant corn before the 12th of May. And the reason for that is the right time to plant corn is when oak leaves are the size of squirrels' ears. That's when the season starts.
2: now, Oswald says, he and other farmers plant corn a month earlier, in mid-April. That's partly because they're planting hardier varieties now. But, he says, the weather also warms up a lot sooner than it used to. These longer growing seasons can result in higher yields. Still, Oswald says he worries climate change will make farming much harder in the future. He's been thinking about it more and more since 2019, when catastrophic flooding swamped his farm and childhood home. From his pickup truck, he points to where the water stood for months.
1: From the Nebraska bluffs behind us to the Missouri bluffs in front of us, it was all water.
2: Oswald lost about 26,000 bushels of corn in that flood, some of which is still rotting on the ground at his farm. He says farmers rely on science and data every day to grow their crops. And the data show climate change is happening. But in his community, not many people will discuss it.
1: They don't want to use the word climate change. Yeah, it's been hot, but I don't want to call it climate change. Or It's been wet, but I wouldn't say it's climate change.
2: Having these frank discussions is hard, he says. But it will help them better prepare for what's coming. For Harvest Public Media... I'm Shayla Farzan.
0: Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering farming and rural life across the Midwest. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. For farmer health and safety programs, the past two years have been busy, and one area of wellness has become especially important. Josephine McRobbie talks to one such program in North Carolina.
1: Farming solo can be isolating. I just had a lot of learning to do, and I didn't know this land yet. It's getting the infrastructure to produce food. That's the hang-up in farming. The fact that
4: you generally only get one crop per year has just made the learning curve
5: just very steep.
4: For two years, I've interviewed North Carolina farmers for Earth Eats. And even at successful, thriving farms, there are still huge challenges.
3: I call it compounded stress. Because there are many, many stressors.
4: Dr. Robin Tudor Markham is director of the North Carolina Agromedicine Institute, an organization working towards farmer safety and health.
3: And just when I think that I've heard them all, I hear another one farm finance, the volatility in markets, family pressures, intergenerational farm transfer, regulatory pressures, developmental encroachment. We're a state that has a lot of hurricanes, a lot of tornadoes. So the stressors are endless.
4: Institute staff do everything from helping farmers find health insurance to developing grain silo safety programs. But a decade ago, Dr. Markham realized that they had a gap in their services.
3: I had lunch with a farm woman who had suffered a fatality of a worker on her farm, and her husband had suffered two serious injuries. And she looked across the table uh, during lunch at me, and she said, You know that I believe in the work you do, that I understand the importance of farm safety and health. But if you don't do something about the stress that farmers and their families are under, then the other work that you do is not going to mean anything. And so I made her a promise that day that we would work on farm stress and try to do something about it. So it's been a very slow uphill process because farmers are very private people, and we don't believe in talking about stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, alcoholism. We keep all those things inside.
4: The Institute now runs a peer help program called Farmer to Farmer. Interested farmers sign up to be trained as a sort of peer counselor and are matched with those who might need mental health or emotional support.
3: I'm from a farm family. Both of my sons are farmers. But it's one thing for me in a professional role to talk about those things. And for a farmer to have someone who looks like him, who lives the day-to-day like him, who experiences those same internal thoughts about, I'm barely holding on, what am I going to do? It's very different to have another farmer to talk to.
4: To get involved, farmers take mental health first aid and suicide prevention courses, and they participate in discussion groups about the subtleties of what struggle can look like out in the world.
3: What are the causes of farm stress? What does it look like when someone is depressed or anxious? What are the signs that someone might be contemplating suicide? We talk about listening skills and communication skills. We talk about what to do if someone is in crisis.
4: Meanwhile, nurses working at the Agromedicine Institute do intake to determine if the peer program is a good fit for farmers who request help.
3: They find out a little bit more about their background, about what commodities they're farming, about their family, um, if they have a faith community, and also they screen them for anxiety and depression.
4: They screen for mental health issues before and throughout the program to determine if a farmer might actually need crisis intervention or professional counseling. They also monitor to see if the peer match is continuing to be a good fit.
3: We have both men and women who are peer farmers along the age continuum. So we have someone who just graduated with their master's in crop science, and then we have someone. I I call our seasoned farmer, someone over the age of 60 who's a farmer, with different commodities, so a cattleman, a Christmas tree grower, a row crop farmer.
4: This kind of service, where commonality or camaraderie is leveraged to improve public health, isn't exactly new. To develop her program, Dr. Markham consulted with a Diabetes Prevention Peer Support Service. But the stigma around emotional struggles, especially in a field like agriculture, makes it tricky to get the word out, so people often come to her in a roundabout way.
3: Because we have established those relationships over the years working on other issues, then people are more likely to reach out to us and say, you've helped me before, can you help me with this? The most important Thing they want is to make sure that when we're matching farmers, that we generally have people who can listen, um, that they can interact with, but they don't want to be matched with another farmer who's in their own county or maybe the county over. That was the most important thing because of the privacy issue that I talked about, the privacy and the pride. And so we have taken that um, quite seriously so that our matches so far have been on opposite ends of the state.
4: One of Dr. Markham's research interests is women in agriculture, and so she's been especially excited to make those connections.
3: The farm woman who challenged me to do the farm stress work, she said, I can be dressed in professional dress. She said, and I can go into a meeting and people say, well, what do you do? And she said, I'm a farmer. And she said, people look at her like she's a white elephant that they just could not relate to her. Farm women can talk to farm women and they understand one another.
4: There's something about the mirror-like quality of Farmer to Farmer that has made it stick.
3: We have uh, one pairing and they have been able to meet, even though it's a very busy time of year for them, they meet uh, virtually and um, have established consistent Um, conversations and our peer farmer is just excellent and that she's able to offer very simple small things that the farmer that she's working with can do that are really making a difference uh, for that farmer. So I think that knowing that we have some matches that have established comfortable relationships, that's very important.
4: For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie.
0: Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and now it's time for a recipe, or rather a set of recipes. We're visiting today with Arlen Llewellyn. She's been the chef at Function Brewing for eight years. Hi, Arlen, what are we gonna make today? Hi, Kate. We
5: are making a series of things which all starts with umami paste.
0: Arlen is also the mom of twin toddlers. She says that over the pandemic, with increased demands on her time, she's looked for ways to be more efficient in the kitchen.
5: I like to do something that is really impactful that then can be repurposed in several different dishes throughout the week very easily. And so we're gonna make an umami paste and then we're gonna translate that into a vegan banh mi. But the umami paste itself, when we make that, I'll, I'll give you some ideas about how we can use that and to turn it into some other dishes as well.
0: Can you say a little bit about umami?
5: Yeah, umami is the fifth taste, and it's the sense that a food is really savory and satisfying. It is a mouthfeel, but it's also just a genuine just sort of impression that something is filling and satisfying. I think there's a really primal aspect of ourselves that it taps into that makes us feel like, okay, we're going to be safe. We can get through the harsh winter night in our cave because we're eating something that's really filling us up. And so when you're thinking about ways to bring a lot of satisfaction with a short amount of time i always like to tap into um, umami so we're going to use a lot of things which naturally have a a lot of umami flavor to them and so we're going to make this really concentrated paste that you're not necessarily going to want to eat by the spoonful because it makes this really strong punch that can get interpreted lots of different ways so we're going to use a blender i when possible i would try to use a high-powered blender if you have a more traditional home blender, I would try to mince and chop things up as much as possible before you put it in there because you really want to force these ingredients to come together as much as possible. So we're going to start with a head of garlic of peeled cloves. It's approximately two ounces. I'm going to use two ounces of oil-packed sun-dried tomatoes. If you don't use oil-packed, I would recommend adding some additional liquid to this mixture because It is a lot of hard and dry things, and so every little bit of liquid here is helping. So even that little residual oil on these tomatoes, even though they've been drained, is going to help bring this together. And do not discard the oil because we're going to use that here in just a second with a different recipe. And we want two and a half ounces of drained capers. And we want one and a quarter ounces, or approximately one and a half tablespoons, of miso. So this ingredient list is either things that just naturally have the savory quality in them automatically or things that are fermented like miso which uh, fermentation brings that complexity and that savoriness. Miso being fermented soybean paste. Then it's extremely salty if you haven't worked with it before, which is why we're not going to we're not going to need to add any salt to this. Again when trying to build flavor that's another trick is to avoid salt and only add things that are, have salt, that are very salty and also bring a lot of flavor, like soy sauce or miso, because then it's doing some of that flavor work for you. And we're going to want two tablespoons of Dijon mustard. And we're going to do a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. I like to use apple cider vinegar in the raw. It's a living ingredient, so again, it's uh, adding that sort of extra complexity. tablespoon of that and a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar and now we're gonna blend it up. I like to start really low and then increase the speed once I feel like it's kind of getting universally broken down. with a very thick reddish brown paste which packs so much flavor. However, you don't want to use this right as is if you can avoid it. It's definitely better if you can let it sit for several days and develop a further flavor as all those ingredients work together. So I've, I've made some so I figure we can try the brand new batch up against the one that's aged for several days to sort of see what that brings to the party. Okay. Seven ingredients, everyone, each one of them serves a really strong purpose. We have only one vessel that we're dirtying, the blender, and it's gonna just bring so much flavor we can incorporate in lots of different ways.
0: That's not a lot of chopping or anything fussy.
5: And this freezes beautifully too, if you wanna make a batch and just tuck it away and then have it as a flavor powerhouse waiting for you in your freezer.
0: Arlen set up two tasting plates so that we could sample the aged umami paste Next to the freshly made batch. Yeah, the aged one definitely has more of a rich and, yeah, just unified.
5: Unified is a great word for it, because then that first one you get hit, you can taste the garlic, you can taste the capers, you can taste the apple cider vinegar and the balsamic. And I don't mind that, but. which I think is really gonna serve us because again, we're not eating it straight as is. We're gonna move it on to some other aspects within our vegan banh mi. At this point, we just wanna build the most sort of complex flavor we can.
0: It definitely has the umami and like you said, the, the savory, but it's got a lot of acidity too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's also still quite bright.
5: Yes, yeah, some tanginess, which is going to be intentional because when we put it on a banh mi and we're going to surround that with a whole lot of bread, you want that brightness to cut through or otherwise the the sandwich can eat a little flat. In and of itself, the umami paste just just can just be a great staple in your household. I said you can pop it in the freezer or just keep a jar in the fridge for a week. I like to make an umami pasta. So you're going to cook your pasta of choice and you're going to add umami paste to it and and tossing it with a little bit of extra pasta cooking water until you're creating a really well-coated pasta that's really saucy. And you can serve it with Parmesan and fresh basil leaves. Umami ramen, so you would cook your ramen noodles, you'd take some roasted or steamed vegetables, put them in a bowl, and then you'd mix hot vegetable broth with that umami paste. And then you can garnish it with your protein of choice, baked or fried tofu, poached egg, braised pork, all great options. And another option is an umami salad dressing. So you're gonna dilute that paste with equal parts oil and vinegar. You can also season it to taste with extra Dijon mustard, garlic powder, and salt, as you prefer. So it makes for a really versatile team player in the back of your kitchen. In this case though, we're gonna take this dish a little bit further and we're gonna make a vegan banh mi.
0: When Arlen calls this a banh mi sandwich, she's not talking about a traditional or authentic one. Banh Mi is a Vietnamese sandwich that originated during the country's lengthy French colonial era. The bread is a French baguette, soft on the inside with a crispy crust. Traditionally, Banh Mi would include a Vietnamese pâté of salty duck liver, but here in the U.S. you'll often find them filled with thinly sliced meats or fried tofu, plus pickled vegetables and sometimes fresh herbs and hot peppers. Capers, sun-dried tomatoes, and Dijon mustard aren't typically found in banh mi, but it's open to interpretation. Arlen's version strives to hit those savory, salty notes with a tangy punch that's typical for this type of sandwich.
5: So we've made our umami paste. Some of it is going to get used on our umami roasted mushrooms, and the other part of it is going to get turned into some umami pickled vegetables. So if I was planning to eat banh mi in a few days, I would go ahead and make the paste today and I would go ahead and take some of that paste and turn it straight into pickled vegetables. And then a few days later, I'll have pickled vegetables that are good to go. I will have umami paste that has nicely aged a few days in my fridge. And then everything else comes together really quickly. To make the umami pickled vegetables, you're gonna want six cups of bite-sized vegetables. I like to use a mix of very soft, high moisture vegetables. In this case, zucchini and bell pepper. And then also some dense root vegetables. In this case, butternut squash, but I've done it with carrots and cauliflower. Because they, they create a mix of different textures. And also the moisture-packed vegetables inherently will soak up a little bit more of that brine. And the root vegetables won't, so you get a little bit of a contrast. So, butternut squash, we are going to- Like a pro. <laughs> with it, wielding a big knife, we're going to peel it. When I'm doing something like this, we have a farmer who picks up our grain and our food scraps, veggie scraps. So I always think about the pig that's probably gonna end up eating these. Little butternut squash peels and wondering if they will like them. So I would do a relatively small dice, probably about a third inch dice. And I a mix of an orange and a green bell pepper. Obviously, if you like things spicy, you could throw a hot pepper in this mix. We're going to do some zucchini, and some bell pepper chunks, and some better squash cubes. And we're going to spread them out on a cookie sheet with par- lined with parchment paper. That sun-dried tomato oil, you can of course substitute any other cooking oil, but that sun-dried tomato is just going to add that extra punch of umami. So we're going to use three tablespoons. Measure and pour it on, and then you just toss it really well to coat them thoroughly. We're going to bake this in a 400 degree oven for about 30 minutes. I check it every 10 minutes and stir. You're looking for caramelization to start happening. You want to make your umami paste first before you do this because as soon as we pull these out of the oven, we're going to add umami paste to them while they're still hot. So we'll go ahead and pop these in the oven. Go ahead and add two-thirds of a cup of umami paste directly to the veggies. The reason we roast these, obviously, you are just trying to build more and more flavor. So the Maillard reaction that occurs when something caramelizes produces a lot of extra satisfying flavors in our mouth. And so we're going we're to get both that as well as our umami paste. So this is basically creating the flavor of our brine. It's always great to add flavoring to something while it's still hot. I'm not a food scientist. The way I think about it is that when it's still, when the item, the vegetable or whatever is cooking, and super hot, it's pushing all this liquid out as it's steaming out. But eventually as it cools down, it will take some liquid back in. And so as you have added some more flavor right around it, that liquid, as it sucks it back in, it's gonna get some of that flavor inside in a way that you won't have an opportunity to later. Um, That's basically what we're doing with these pickled vegetables. We're getting some umami flavor on them right away while they're still hot. Um, and then we're going to them, put them in a vinegar bath and let it hang out for several days. So we want to let this cool down until it's cool enough to touch. We're going to add one tablespoon of kosher salt and one cup of apple cider vinegar. We're going to stir it all up. And we're going to cover that and put it in our fridge and forget about it for a few days and let it hang out and develop more and more flavor and really penetrate the innermost parts of those vegetables with that umami flavor.
0: Like the umami paste, the pickled vegetables are also quite versatile. Arlen says you can toss them into salads and layer them onto sandwiches. And remember, sandwiches is where we're headed. You'll want to make the paste and the pickles a few days ahead of time so they can hang out and mellow and their flavors can mingle. On the day you plan to make the sandwiches, you'll be roasting a pan of mushrooms.
5: I'm going to get a pound and a half of mushrooms you can use any that you want for extra flavor and complexity i like mixing some exotic mushrooms in wild they're also called wild mushrooms because they just have a little bit more flavor and punch than the white or portobello or cremini that you would see at the grocery store some of the specialty stores have them where they have oyster or shiitake are are typically the most common obviously the farmer's market you may find a local forager who has some really interesting things of course if you could do this with really local in season fresh foraged mushrooms that would be really great. In a pinch you could definitely just get mushrooms from the store. So today I'm using baby portobellos and shiitakes. So we're just going to slice these up. I like to slice them pretty thin.
0: The mushrooms just kind of on their own have oh yeah, a strong umami thing going on.
5: Right. Yes. I mean to me, when I, the thing I think of, the, the word that pops up most when I think of umami is savory. And so that's when you're, there are lots of things that are delicious, like ice cream is delicious, but it's not umami because it's not savory. And it's funny how like once, it, once it's present in something, it doesn't translate into a dessert. We have fig onion jam on our menu and it's so sweet. It's very sweet. It's a jam and it's got figs and it's so sweet that It's easy to think of it as a dessert. We typically serve it with, like, goat cheese here or on one of our sandwiches. My husband was like, we should put it on cheesecake at home one night. (laughs) And the presence of those onions brought that, like, savoriness to it that it was so unpleasant as soon as you tried Even though it tasted like it would be something that would be appropriate in a dessert context, it wasn't at all. (laughs) So I think that that's part of it is, like, unlike the other four tastes that can have – They're more versatile, umami really isn't. It hangs out in the savory realm and if you try to put it in a dessert, it does not go well in my mind. And we're gonna add four tablespoons of vegan butter to this. If you're not a vegan and just have regular butter at home, obviously you can certainly use that. We're just gonna chop up the butter in some cubes. You can either roast them in the oven or you can saute them in a pan. Either way is gonna be just fine. You're just trying to get the mushrooms to really give up all of their or the vast majority of their moisture. I'm gonna do it for about 325 325 degrees. I mean, it's probably gonna need about 10 more minutes after that. And then once the mushrooms are done, they've surrendered that moisture and they're just beginning to caramelize and certainly to have really shrunk down significantly in size. Then we're going to, while still hot, we're gonna add half a tablespoon of that umami paste and one and a quarter teaspoons of kosher salt. And we're gonna stir that in while it's still hot. These mushrooms are gonna be really, really satisfying. I mean, this is enough to make at least four sandwiches, and also it would be great on a big pile of pasta. Your, your basic banh mi has crusty bread, some sort of rich condiment, a really satisfying, savory base, and then pickled vegetables and fresh herbs. So with that sort of blueprint, you can can interpret it lots of different ways and make it your unique thing.
0: Finally, it was time to assemble the sandwiches. She starts by cutting the baguette open lengthwise, spreads on a layer of hummus, which she says can be homemade or store-bought, and she's using the hummus here as a substitute for mayonnaise and also to bring some protein to the sandwich. Next, she piles on the roasted mushrooms, followed by the pickled vegetables. Finally, she tops it with a thick layer of fresh herbs. Cilantro and Thai basil is a good combination.
5: This is gonna be a messy sandwich. There's no way around it. So now we're gonna put it all together and cross our fingers that so it stays together while we cut it. I like a serrated blade and I like to just put a very gentle pressure. You do not wanna push. You're just trying to slide the knife across the surface of the sandwich. Rather, you don't wanna be feeling like you're pushing down on it until you get to the very bottom of the bread.
0: That's not too bad. Put it together. Oh, that's gorgeous. It was time to taste the entire ensemble. That is a really good sandwich. I love it. Thank you. Um, So much going on, but it feels like it all really comes together.
5: The mushrooms are really savory, the pickles are really bright, the herbs are really herbaceous. And then the hummus just sort of like tucks in there and adds a little extra sort of filling quality to the sandwich. It's really balanced. Like,
0: it's, it doesn't feel too bready because you've got all this other stuff going on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really good. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for
5: coming and Making it with me today.
0: That was Arlen Llewellyn, chef and co-owner of Function Brewing in Bloomington, Indiana, which has recently changed hands. This recipe was recorded in the fall of 2021. Learn more at eartheats.org.
1: Elizabeth Dunn. I'm a professor of geography and international studies at Indiana University. Elizabeth Dunn is also a food
0: scholar. She studies food and immigration. She's the author of the book No Path Home Humanitarian Camps and the Grief of Displacement, published in 2018. In a compelling piece in the Iowa Review called A Gift from the American People, Dunn writes about how food is so much more than a substance that keeps us alive, so much more than calories. She reflects on the misguided approach of humanitarian aid organizations that fail to understand this when providing food aid to displaced people. Producer Alex Chambers spoke with Elizabeth Dunn in 2018. He asked about her experiences working in refugee camps in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. In 2008, Russian forces moved into a Georgian province called South Ossetia on the border between Georgia and Russia. I ran into Elizabeth Dunn on campus this week. I mentioned our interview from several years ago and asked about the similarities between the situation in South Ossetia in 2008 and the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's the same, she said. It's the same except, this time, Europe cares. I thought it might be useful to give this interview another listen this week to help us wrap our minds around what it means to be driven from your homeland. So again, this interview is focused on Elizabeth Dunn's fieldwork in refugee camps in Georgia in the years following the 2008 war between Russia and Georgia. Conflict in the region had led to an ethnic cleansing campaign, pushing the ethnic Georgians out of South Ossetia and into Georgia proper
1: their homes were bombed, aerially bombed, and then um, looted. I mean, wires ripped out, pipes stolen for scrap metal, roofs ripped off. And then those houses were burned. And then in some cases, they were bulldozed to make sure that these people could never go home again. And they were shoved out across the border into Georgia proper, where they became internally displaced people. And, you know, we talk a lot about refugees, but in a strict definition, refugees are people who've crossed an international border. But the overwhelming majority, two-thirds of the world's displaced people, are not refugees. They're internally displaced people. They have not crossed an international border. Uh, the people I worked with, with the help of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, were put into camps, which were they were then told by the Georgian government were permanent, that they were going to be there for the foreseeable future. And these are camps right on the border.
0: Most of these internally displaced people, also known as IDPs, were farmers. And they were forced from their
1: communities in the month of August. Which is right before the harvest season. So they had nothing to subsist on. And so they were dependent on the World Food Program, which is actually the largest provider of humanitarian aid in the world. So they lived on World Food Program packages for more than a year, which meant macaroni, three times a day, every day for almost 18 months actually. So what's the problem with macaroni? So let me start by telling you what the advantages of macaroni are. Um, So macaroni is really um, useful for the World Food Program because it's a durable staple which is light and easy to transport. I mean, it's much lighter than wheat flour. Um, It's lighter than rice, and it's more durable, actually. So it's really, for wheat-eating populations, it's really a preferred substance. So the World Food Program also has a target number of calories that every displaced person should get every day. I think it's like 2,340. And so macaroni is like caloric filler. It gets them up to the number of required calories. And one of the things that's really interesting about that approach to providing food to people is it takes a purely biological approach. It assumes that the goal of aid is not to restore people socially or to integrate them into local communities or to give them back their professions and their kinship relations, which have been literally blown apart, It assumes that the point of aid is for people to survive another day. And it's like Groundhog Day, right? Every day is the next day. And you are thought of once you're a refugee or an IDP, you're thought of only in biological terms, right? I mean, you have no distinguishing characteristic. Everybody gets the same amount of food no matter if they're working hard in the fields or, you know, they're invalids laying around men and little babies get the same 2340 calories a day right so it reduces people to the biological minimum and the anthropologist peter redfield has referred to this as biopolitical minimalism and th- and that's what people were confronting but food is so much more than that right food is food is about kinship food is about love food is about generosity and hospitality food is about cultural identity and all of those factors were neglected when they were given macaroni. Yeah. The interesting thing was that for Georgians, macaroni is sort of not food. I mean, they have macaroni, it was an import from the Russians. But it doesn't have a place in the grammar of Georgian cuisine, which is exquisite, by the way, which is just like so good. Um, You know, pomegranates, walnuts, really deep beef flavors, steamed dumplings the size of your fist that are full of soup. This is Georgian cuisine, right? Wow. Exquisite. And macaroni is the, because it's a Russian import, it's either eaten boiled, plain, sometimes sprinkled with sugar, or it's cracked in, you know, s- spaghetti's cracked into soup. But those are the only two ways you eat macaroni in Georgia. It's just macaroni is the food when you, that you eat when you are too poor to eat anything else. So what was really interesting to me was that I started interviewing people about the aid they were receiving and they would say over and over, nothing. What have you gotten here? Nothing and i'm like wait a minute i see the bags of macaroni under your bed and i see that you're in this little cinder block cottage and i see these ratty little stools that you were given and bare pine floorboards it was not luxurious but it's something and for them it was nothing it didn't count for anything and macaroni because it's it's not food that you can host other people with mm. Georgians have a have a long tradition of a ritual banquet. And these banquets break out at, I mean, spontaneously break out at different moments. But they're extremely ritualized and they demand certain kinds of food. And you can't host people at a banquet and serve them plain boiled macaroni. I mean, yeah. that's, that's absolutely a shame. So... What would the foods be? Oh, my God. I, I have seen, I mean, at a big supra... Mm-hmm. The goal is to make sure that you cannot see the table, that that the, the dishes are piled up in so many layers, balancing the edge of one plate on the other, that you literally cannot see the table underneath it. So sulguni cheese, romi, which is a corn pudding with smoked cheese in it. There's an eggplant pâté that's molded into balls and a beet greens pate which is molded into balls delicious. With walnuts, actually. It's a kind of a paste of walnuts and beet greens. There is badrujani Nivzit, which is strips of fried eggplant rolled around a paste made of parsley, cilantro, walnuts, herbs. I mean just it's it's fantastic. And and amazingly, at many supras I have eaten until I could burst. And then they say, well, that's it for the cold food. Here comes the hot food. So the food is elaborate and it's really culturally and religiously important to them. And when the banquets had to stop, that was in many ways a real detriment to their kinship relations, to their attachments to their neighbors from their villages, to their familial relations. I mean, inside the nuclear family, to religion, religion, I mean, this is a religious event every time it happens, one of these banquets. So that's detrimental. You can't practice your faith with macaroni. So macaroni posed a lot of sort of existential problems. So people's response to that is yeah, generally negative. They see it as degrading, which it is. They see it as disempowering because you don't even have the choice to choose what you eat. I ask my students very often, imagine you were in an earthquake and the Japanese came to provide aid. And what they brought you was a really common Japanese snack, dried squid heads. <laughs> how, how many dried squid heads would you eat? Yeah. So so I think people really, really rebelled against the macaroni. They really felt that it it marked the erasure of their entire social identities. It. It was nothing food because they were nothing people.
0: You say at one point in the article that the humanitarian food aid keeps people in limbo in camps.
1: Well, so camps in general keep people in limbo. Right. Right. Um, Camps are meant to be temporary, which is why they very often have tents. Now, the average length of stay in a refugee camp is 17 years. That's the average length of stay. Of course, the record holders are the Palestinians. They've been there 70-plus years. So what they are is permanently temporary. In, in a camp, you're always waiting to go back. You, you never really settle into a camp. It's always just until we can go back. And yet that just until can last decades. It can last generations. So the way we think about camps really has to change. The food in the camps is a part of that limbo, largely because the food aid does not do much to respect their culture, their traditions. It does not do very much to leverage what they can grow or produce themselves. And I think because it's aimed just at biological reproduction, it is, for most people, food that is without meaning. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And worthless.
1: And worthless. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: You talk in the article, too, about some of the ways that people managed to bring back some of their living food traditions.
1: So one of the things that people in this part of the world have done since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 is do a ton of home canning. And one of the things that really, really hurt when their villages were destroyed is that they lost all their jars. And those jars are expensive. They're about one laria apiece, and you need about 400 of them. For a family for the winter, and nobody had four hundred laris for this, right? I mean, that's a, that was a very large sum of money, so they really needed to get those jars back. And so I, I have a really good friend, who in the book I call Manana. She says to me, "Oh, look, you have your friend's car here. Let's let's go for a ride. Let's go to my cousin's for lunch. I'll tell you what. Let's go get my jam jars." And I'm like, "Okay, what are we doing?" So she leads me down the road. And I have no idea that what we are doing is driving towards the conflict zone. So we hit the Georgian checkpoint. Right. And there's this guy and he's got an American M5, which is a very, very large gun. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I start babbling in Georgian like, oh, yeah, I'm here with my friend. And we wanted to make jam. And, you know, her jars are there. So we need to go get the jars. And so, yeah, so we're here. We're going to make jam, strawberry jam. And he looks at me like, God, you are stupid. And at first, it's unbelievable. Like, why would an American be driving into the buffer zone to make jam, right? So he's like, I I can't authorize this. You're going to have to go see the commander. So we drive kind of bumping down this rutted road, and we get to the village of Mereti. And at there, this is the actual dividing line now between the Russian and the Georgian armies. And we pull up, and there's a bunker, like a sandbags bunker with that camouflage netting over the top and out comes this guy and in in camouflage fatigues and he's like a slab like you know one of those guys who's so muscle bound he can't actually close his armpits right so he comes out and he's like what are you doing here and we're like oh yeah we're here to make jam yeah jam that's the ticket you know how it is jam you got to make jam it's august and um I'm just babbling away as fast as I can babble. And he looks at me and like the light breaks over his face. And he realizes that we're not spies. We're just idiots. <laughs> and <laughs> he's like, oh, this is entertaining, right? Because it's boring sitting there. Mm. The two armies aren't fighting. They're at a standoff. And so uh, he invited us to sit down and have coffee with him and tell him all about what we were doing. And at the end, he let us go. And we we went into the village of Meridi and there, Manana goes into her cousin's house, goes down into the basement and reappears with this giant bag full of jars, glass jars. And I'm like, "What, whoa, Manana, where did you get these? I mean, how did you get your jars back? Her house was across the border inside the conflict zone. It was occupied by the Russian 58th Army. If you crossed that border and they caught you, they would either sentence you to a five-year prison term or they'd shoot you on the spot. So I'm like, where did you get these? And she's sort of like, la, la, la. And it turned out that her husband had managed to obtain a false passport. And he's a smuggler by trade. And he was moving things back and forth across the border. And he had gone to the ruins of their house. And he had gone into the the cellar. And the jars had not been broken during the war. The house was decimated. The walls were torn down. The roof was off. But the jars were still there. And he, she said he cried, actually, that he he started weeping. And then he got super, super drunk and spent the night in the cellar. And then in the morning, he came out and brought all her jars out. And he had spirited them across the border to Moretti, where we were picking them up. So, wow. so that's how important those jars were to them. I, I think... What's really important about those jars is that they enabled people to start making their own food by choice again, food that had a provenance, food that was from a defined place, and that would circle through networks of kin and friends. Like, people trade jars so that they get different foods, so that they vary their diet. And, um, and you know, always, when you open a jar, like who made it, where it's from, those were jars So That was food that connected people to one another, and it was super important. That was producer Alex
0: Chambers talking with Elizabeth Dunn in 2018. Elizabeth Dunn is a professor of geography and international studies at Indiana University. She's also the director of IU's new Center for Refugee Studies, which formally opens in August of 2022. The United Nations says Russia's invasion of Ukraine could displace anywhere from three million to five million people. That would be the largest relocation of a population in Europe since World War II. More than one million people have left so far. Elizabeth Dunn is in contact with people assisting on the ground in Kyiv and across the border in Poland. In fact, she's headed there next week. Hopefully the conflict will end quickly and those forced to flee can return to their homes. I'm not sure how the world will manage another refugee crisis, especially one of this scale and magnitude. Find links to more information and resources at eartheats.org.
5: Includes Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Robin Tudor Markham, Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, Alex Chambers, Arlen Llewellyn, and everyone at Function Brewing. Thanks for everything.
5: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.